0: Lord is King seems to be the theme this morning. Let's talk to him. Oh, Father, you are our King. Jesus, you are the anointed, the righteous one, our Savior. We love studying the book of Romans because it reveals to us what was happening behind the scenes from your perspective how salvation works, all the intricacies that Paul explains, Lord, we confess again that the gospel is simple, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and yet you gave us the book of Romans to help us to understand all the little things and important things necessary things that you pulled together to make it all work so that lost sinners could be saved, justified. Father, we thank you for that, and we ask you to give us clearer insight on it this morning and in the weeks ahead as we continue to, to study Romans. Oh, Father, come now, send your spirit, give us ears to hear, and the heart that wants to believe and obey what we hear. To the extent that it comes from your word, we know that it's true. And so, Father, protect us from error and fill us with your truth and transform us by your grace. These things we ask in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. This morning, we're back into Paul's letter to the Romans. And after 19 messages so far on God's, um, God's judgment, most of those passages were on God's judgment upon sinners, uh, not because we decided to, to do that topic, but because that's what the text was saying. And so we've come now to a major transition. In verse 21 of chapter 3, Paul switches from condemnation to justification, The first three chapters by design focused on the condemnation of all sinners so that Paul's readers will feel compelled from the heart to find and embrace justification. Condemnation means that sinners are declared guilty in the court of God by an act of sovereign justice, Justification means that sinners are declared righteous. It's an act of sovereign grace. The big question, however, is is this. If sinners are truly guilty before the court of God, how can God declare them righteous without committing an injustice himself in the process? Again, you've got to picture yourself here in the courtroom. There are laws that must be obeyed. How can God justify the unrighteous without he himself being unrighteous in the process? I mean, any rogue judge can arbitrarily declare a murderer innocent. But to do so would be wrong. It would be unjust. But there is no injustice with God. God is no unrighteous judge. And so how does God do it? Upon what legal grounds can God be just and the justifier of those who believe? Now, I'm, I'm just going to tell you up front, I'm not going to answer that question today. But this is the context, and we are moving in that direction this is a critical question. If, if we want to understand the gospel and Paul's answer to this question in the text, then we're going to need to do some study. You may remember from the last time we were together, which was a couple of weeks ago, I, I didn't intend to take that week off. I'll be taking more weeks off in the future that were planned, but uh, it's been a couple of weeks since we look at this, so, so let me remind you a little bit about what we, we said Um. You remember that I suggested that it would be helpful to us and it would prepare us to answer this crucial question if we would take the time to cultivate a clear understanding of who God is before we dive into the details of what God does. The passage before us helps us understand who God is, but we kind of have to look beyond the text. I know... Now that, that is a dangerous thing, right? I mean, I'm an expositor. We go word by word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, which is why we're 19 messages in and we're only still in chapter 3. But there are hints here about who God is that, that I have found to be helpful in understanding the legality of what God is doing and what Paul is declaring on God's behalf. And so the passage before us helps us understand who God is. It mentions certain attributes of God that undergird his actions as he pursues justification. In this passage, I believe we can see actually seven attributes of God that help us understand the gospel of God. Specifically, we see the God who justifies The ungodly is a holy God, he is a faithful God, he's a righteous God, he's a glorious God, he's a gracious God, he's a forbearing God, and he is a just God. And all except for the first one is specifically mentioned in the text, the holiness of God. And I talked about that extensively last time. But before we dive into this study of the attributes of God as portrayed in this passage of Scripture, let's take a moment to read the text. Would you stand with me in honor of God's Word? And I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. This is Romans three twenty-one through 26, and you can follow along with me. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, don't get hung up on that word, I'll explain it in a couple of weeks as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who is faith in Jesus. He who has ears to hear, let him hear, and you can be seated. What kind of God justifies the ungodly? I love that question. Is't that a great question. You can nod your head or you can say, "Amen or so, Or you can say, "No, I just really don't think that's a great question." <laughs> what kind of God justifies the ungodly? By way of review, a couple of things here. Number one, the God who justifies is a holy God. That God is holy speaks first, not to his moral purity, but to the reality that he is absolutely distinct from everything and everyone. Everything in the cosmos. There's none like him. There's nothing like him. One author writes, there is a special kind of fear from which we all suffer. It's called xenophobia. Xenophobia. Xenophobia is the fear and sometimes the hatred of strangers or foreigners, or of anything that is strange and foreign. And then he writes, God is the ultimate object of xenophobia. He is the ultimate stranger. And when you are an unbeliever, you didn't like him. And if you were honest with the truth, he scared you. He is the ultimate foreigner. He is holy and we are not. And that is a frightening proposition because one day we will stand before him. Because God is holy, he is absolutely unaffected by the schemes of men, of course, His holiness is characterized by moral purity, and and it is the infinite holiness of God that makes all of his other attributes holy. That means all of his judgments are holy judgments, and all of his actions are holy actions. It cannot be otherwise, because God is holy. And so the God who justifies is a holy God. The other one we talked about last week is this. The God who justifies is a faithful God. We see this in verse 21 there in Romans 3 where Paul tells us that the righteousness of God which is shorthand for the gospel of God is manifest through the testimony of the law and the prophets. In other words, the roots of Paul's gospel are the very promises of God found in the Old Testament, even as early as the book of Genesis and Job, which is probably older than Genesis. I think Paul wants his readers to understand that the gospel is nothing new. and This is not something that Paul came up with. God's promises of salvation start all the way back in Genesis where he promised our sinful parents, Adam and Eve, that a son of Eve will come and crush the serpent's head and, and he will bruise him on his heel. Later in Genesis, he teaches us through the narrative of Abraham that those who are justified receive their justification, not by works, but by faith alone. Uh, We don't have time to dive into that this morning, but thankfully, the Apostle Paul will when we get to chapter 4, which isn't very far off. I mean, relatively speaking. (laughs) But most of chapter 4 unpacks justification by faith alone through the narrative of Abraham. And it is helpful and wonderful. But what I want you to hear, however, is that the gospel the gospel promise of justification by faith alone comes to us from the heart of a faithful God. And so the God who justifies is a holy God. He's a faithful God in the sense that he promised. He promised a Messiah. He promised salvation. He, prov- he promised to provide a way for there to be forgiveness of our sins and, and reconciliation with God. And he has kept his promise. So he's a holy God, this God who justifies. And the God who justifies is, is faithful. And number three, the God who justifies is a righteous God. And this is where we pick up from last time. When we speak of God's attribute of righteousness, we mean that God always acts in accordance with what is right. Right. He always acts in accordance with what is right. Righteousness is not arbitrary. It's not a goalpost that's easily moved or that can move at all. There is an objective standard to measure what is right and what is wrong. This is, this is one of the foundation stones of a Christian worldview. When God declares something to be right and another thing wrong, he is not measuring them against something outside of himself. Rather, true righteousness is measured against God's own person and nature. Anything that is contrary to God's nature is wrong, and everything that is consistent with God's nature is right. And this is probably why this is probably the paradigm that Paul was thinking of when he said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, why? Because he cannot deny himself, he cannot deny himself, to do so would be to lie, would, to do so would be, to, be to, to commit an unrighteous act, you see beloved the world determines what is right and wrong just and unjust, by the, the court of public opinion. And it seems to me that whenever the people of greatest influence successfully sway society's norms, it's always in the direction away from God. It's always in a direction. It's incremental. Sometimes we don't notice it so much. Unless you're old like me and you can remember when our society's norms were a little closer to the righteousness of God. The few exceptions in society are, are the, the few times when God, in his mercy, sends revival through the proclamation of the gospel. Witness the Great Awakening that happened in the early and mid-1700s. It swept through Britain and, and the American colonies in in the 1700s. and And you probably hear me reference that. Uh, more often than I should from from the pulpit but but I tell you if you if you read about it and study what God did there through Whitfield and and others it is truly amazing and it's what our country desperately needs again but God's view of righteousness never changes because God's nature is fixed It is immovable, theologians say that God is immutable, which means he never changes. He doesn't modify his moral law based on the whims of human preferences and feelings. God didn't get elected to his office. Nobody can elect him out. In our day, people speak of the new morality, right? But can I tell you a secret? There is no such thing. There is only various degrees of breaches of true righteousness. The psalmist said, The kings of the earth take their stand, saying, Let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords from us. That that is, let us break free from the restraining law of God. You know what the next word, what the next phrase says? He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, and then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Again, the prophet Isaiah declares in Isaiah five twenty: Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light. And light for darkness. Now let me just clarify something about this this verse. Woe to those. Friends, when Isaiah uses the word woe, he's not telling his horse to slow down. (laughs) The word woe is a pronouncement of judgment and a curse. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. In light of all we've seen over the past year, over the past 10 years, over the past 10 days, does anyone still believe that the United States of America is not under the judgment of God? I mean, we don't have time to go back to Romans chapter one and two where God promised it. Beloved, it is here, it has begun. We should not be shocked by what we see. I would remind you that the judgment is not fire and brimstone coming out of heaven. It's not what he's talking about. what he's talking about is God giving people over to what they want. Theologians call it the wrath of abandonment. I love it. Our country has a, a really big problem but our problem is not a social justice problem. It's not a financial equity problem. It's not a political warfare problem. It's not an environmental problem. No, we have a righteousness problem. You see, one day, sinful man and holy God will stand face to face before the throne, and it will be everlastingly determined who is in the right. Oh, my friends... There is a fatal error that I hear again and again when I share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people. Ask them why they think God would let them into heaven when they die and stand before him. They will say something like this, almost invariably. They they use a thousand different ways of saying it, but basically it all means this. Well, I'm not a bad person. I mean, I've never killed anyone. I've heard that one 10,000 times. Never killed anyone. well, that puts my heart at ease. <laughs> <laughs> I've never cheated on my wife. I've never sold drugs to children. It's as if people think that when they die, God is going to pull out the scales and measure your level of righteousness against a murderer or against an adulterer, against a A terrorist. Or, or a drug dealer, but that's not how it works. I mean, if you want to use the analogy of the scale, let's use the analogy of the scale. This is how it will work. On the day you meet God, the scale will come out, and God will put you on one side of the scale, and you're waiting him, waiting for him to drag out the murderer or the drug dealer or someone and put him in the other, in the other scale so that you will be shown to be righteous, but to your horror. When you sit on your side of the scale, God Himself comes and sits on the other side of the scale. And you are in serious trouble. If you think that you are not really that bad, that's not the issue. It's that God requires perfect righteousness be holy as I am holy. He himself is the measuring stick. He is the measure of righteousness and everything that exists in heaven is righteous as he is righteous. So why would he allow a sinner to contaminate it? That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, therefore you must be perfect. Can you quantify that? Yep. Even as your heavenly Father is perfect. And every time I tell someone that, Happened this past week. Um, They always say the same thing or something similar. That's not fair. None of us are perfect. Exactly. Exactly. Beloved, this is why Paul repeatedly talks about righteousness. Only righteous people will inherit the kingdom of heaven. But how do we who are unrighteous acquire the righteousness that satisfies God? And I mean, we've already blown it. We've already sinned. You probably sinned on your way to church today. And that's what the, the first part of Romans is all about, righteousness. And it's why, in fact, Paul uses the term righteous or righteousness 40, 40 times in this relatively short epistle. I'll say again what I, I've said almost in every sermon on this. That is, that there is a righteousness you desperately need, you don't have, and you cannot earn. That's a predicament. My friend, if you're sitting here this morning and hoping that in the end you will, you're going to catch God on a good day and in a good mood, and he will let you skate through the pearly gates, you are in for a terrifying shock. Because the God of our salvation is a righteous God. And when you come face to face with God, your life will be measured not against your neighbor's immorality or Hitler's atrocities or the drug dealer's criminality. No, you will be judged against the righteousness of God. And on that day, You will not meet gentle Jesus, meek and mild. The Jesus you will meet is the same Jesus that the Apostle John talked about in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. And this is what we read. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And from His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is not the Jesus you have always imagined. This is Jesus, the righteous judge of all things, coming in judgment. far from being invited to skip merrily into the kingdom of heaven, you, my dear friend, will be cast out of his presence where Jesus says there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why? Because God is a righteous God. Who is this God who justifies? Well, he is a holy God. He's a faithful God. He's a righteous God. You see how this is setting up the whole doctrine of justification in this passage. We have to know God. Otherwise, we're going to look at the terms that he uses and say, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem right. That, does, that seems too harsh. That seems too much. It is not so if you know who God is. Fourth, the God who justifies the ungodly is A glorious God. A glorious God. Notice verse 23, Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, what is the glory of God? That was my question this week. I mean, I understand the Greek, doxa is the word. Glory. But doxa can be used in a variety of different ways. The glory of God is literally the great light that shines forth when God makes his presence visible. Back in Exodus, for example, we saw it in the the bush that burned but was not consumed when Moses listened with fear to the voice of God coming out of it. It was the glory of God. We see it again when God led his people out of Egypt and guided them by a pillar of fire. They called it the Shekinah glory. And we see glimmers of it from the bodies of those who were permitted to come close to in close contact with God, witness the angels who appeared often shining with a bright light. You remember at Jesus' birth that the glory of God shone round about them and they were very much afraid. Or think of Moses whose face shone with the glory of God after meeting and speaking with God as it were, face to face. And and we see it again in, in Matthew On the Mount of Transfiguration where Matthew 17, 2 says that Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. This is the glory of God. This is the doxa of God. By the way, at Calvary Bible Church back when we were Calvary Presbyterian independent 27 years ago, every Sunday, We would sing the doxology. You want to sing it? We won't have time later. Let's do it now. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, the heavenly host. Grace, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Let's just close and go home. <laughs> that was beautiful. Some of you folks can really sing and harmonize. You know why it's called doxology? Because it exalts the glory of God. Nevertheless, I think Paul has something else in mind here when he says everyone falls short of the glory of God. The kind of glory Paul is referring to is a kind of glory that is, we have to conclude, or we have to begin with this really understanding that whatever this glory is, it's the opposite of sin. We know that because Paul says, all have sinned, there's the word, and fall short of the, what's the word? Glory, the doxa of God. Now, I think it would really be helpful to us to interpret the statement, Romans 3.23, if we could find a passage written by the same author, hopefully in the same book, where he speaks of the glory of God in the context of human experience. And I didn't find one in Romans, but I did find one by Paul when he was writing his letter to the church at Corinth. And so you can turn with me to 2 Corinthians 3.18. You probably know this passage. You probably have it memorized. If you don't, just jot it down, memorize it today because it's wonderful. I was going to say it was glorious, but that would be redundant. Thankfully, this passage is helpful. Paul wrote it in one of his letters to the church of Corinth, and he says this, 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, he's talking to believers, we all with unveiled face beholding the, what's the next word? Glory, the doxa of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of what? Glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now what Paul is talking about here is that he's talking about the sanctification of believers. Believers. He's not talking about unbelievers at this moment, but you'll see how it fits. When God justifies a sinner, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in him or her and begins powerfully transforming them. He is conforming us to the image of Christ. He's making us like Christ. And what Paul is saying in in Romans 3.23, is all have sinned and are not like Christ. And nothing they do really is measures up to Christ. But when the Spirit comes, When you were born again to a living hope, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you and starts restoring the glory of God in man as it was at first when God first created man. In other words, when the Spirit of God starts transforming the child of God, the goal is the restoration of the image of God. That is, we become more and more like Jesus. Therefore, when Paul says in Romans 3.23 that all fall short of the glory of God, he probably means that no sinner is able to measure up to the righteous person and character of Christ, which is the necessary ingredient for salvation. Paul's saying nobody's got it. Nobody has it. And Paul refers to that as Christ's glory. Only the Spirit of God can bring about such a transformation to a sinner. That's what Paul says in St. Corinthians. In other words, one must be justified by faith before he or she can image forth the glory of God, which is the very purpose for which God created us. Why are you here? Why are you here? All right, all eyes up here for a second, because you need to hear this. And um, those of you who are in fellowship, Paul, I know it if your eyes are up here. (laughs) The reason God created you was to show the world what God is like, to show the world what Christ is like, to show the world. The gospel is like. In Romans 3.23, Paul says, nobody does that. Nobody can. Until the Holy Spirit transforms your heart. Think of it this way: Jesus shows the world what the Father is like. And we were created to show the world what Jesus is like. That's our purpose. That's why we exist. You want a life that's fulfilling your purpose? Live for the glory of God. Live for the glory of Christ. Live to show the world what Jesus is like and what his gospel is like. To show the world what God is like is to live in a manner that is perfectly righteous, even as Jesus is righteous. If we were able to attain the glory of God, listen to this, we would never sin against our spouse. And some of you might be saying, I've never sinned against my spouse. And I would just say, ask your spouse. (laughs) We would never sin with our mouth. We would always love sacrificially. We would always tell the truth. We would love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we would love our neighbor as ourselves. And our hearts would always be inclined to do the Father's will. This is the nature of Jesus Christ. It is his glory. But all have sinned and fall short of that glory. Amazingly, those who have by faith received God's grace of justification will one day be fully transformed into the restored glory that was man's at the beginning. Paradise lost will one day be paradise regained. Holiness lost will be holiness regained. Righteousness lost will be righteousness regained. And everything about us will, be, will perfectly reflect the glory of God. So my friends, let it be known that God who justifies is a holy God. He is a faithful God. He is a righteous God. And he is a glorious God. But there's more. If you have been taking all of this in as an unbeliever, You either have xenophobia, which is right now causing you to want to flee from God, or is provoking in you a hatred of God. Don't leave yet. Because the last thing we're going to talk about today is that the God who justifies is a gracious God. Notice with me what Paul says in verses 23 and 24 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god and are justified by his what grace caris some of you perhaps have a daughter named caris this is what it means grace my wife's name is chris it comes from caris grace you're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see, the problem, the problem mankind faces is the reality that we all fall short of the glory of God. None of us are holy as God is holy. None of us are faithful as God is faithful. None of us is righteous as God is righteous. None of us fulfill the purpose to perfectly reflect the glory of God in this world. We all fall short. And if the Apostle Paul had stopped here, our situation would be hopeless. We would be without hope and without God in this world and forever. But listen closely, my fellow sinner. God is not merely holy, He's not merely faithful, He's not merely righteous, and He's not merely infinitely glorious. He is also a gracious God. The good news of the gospel, verse 24, is that sinners like you and me can be justified, that is declared righteous in the courtroom of heaven by God's grace as a gift, so that all the glory goes to Him. This is soli deo gloria to the glory of God alone. By God's grace, he gifts justification through the redemption that was paid for when Jesus shed his blood and died on the cross on your behalf. Listen. Listen to how Paul says it to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians 1, verse 7. In him, that is, in Christ, and and this is the glorious doctrine of union with Christ, when, when, when the Holy Spirit takes up resonant in your heart, you become united with Christ, permanently united with Christ, so that when God looks for you, he keeps seeing Jesus instead, right? He just sees him. And so Paul says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his what? It's grace. It's grace. Next time we're going to talk about what grace is. But look at Ephesians 2 verse 8. You probably have this memorized. It says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. There it is. There be no boasting in heaven except in Jesus Christ our Lord. When Paul wrote this short epistle to Titus, that other epistle to Titus, he said, He said the same thing like this: Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of a God, our Savior, appeared, uh, he's referring to Jesus. He's calling Jesus the kindness of God and our savior, when he appeared, he saved us not because of works that we had done. Everybody thinks they're gonna be saved by their works. And not just people who claim to be Christians uh, and aren't, but every religion, every religion, it's it just got different prescribed works. But here, Paul is saying, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us not, be, not because of our works done by us, in righteousness, Why? Because we couldn't do that. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured forth on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And when he says the hope of eternal life, he means the promise of eternal life. How do we get it? By grace. You can't earn it. Remember, remember the formula that I've taught you. There is a righteousness you desperately need, you don't have, and you can't what? You can't earn. Why? Because God will be glorified in your salvation, not you. And to the praise of his glory, he will save you by his own grace, not by your works. So that when you get to heaven, and God won't ask you that then, it'll be too late, but if you stand before God and he says, why should I let you in? You say, only because of the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Apart from that, I'm forever lost. Oh, my friend, behold the kindness of the Lord. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of the truth. And this is the truth, that though our sin merits for us only condemnation, the grace of God is greater than all our sin. The grace of God freely justifies us who believe, all who believe. Or another way to say it, is that for those who believe the gospel, the grace of God shields the sinner from the wrath of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote, the Christian life starts with grace. It must continue with grace. It ends with grace. Grace, wondrous grace. By the grace of God I am what I am, Paul says. Yet not I, but the grace of God which is in me. There is a single word that encompasses all the riches we find in Christ, and that word is grace. Grace. Oh, my friend, listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to your heart right now. God is making his appeal through me as I speak. I implore you to be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God, for God made him who knew no sin to be sin for you, that you might become the righteousness of God in him. God treated Jesus on the cross as if he lived your wicked, rebellious life so that he could treat you as if you had lived Christ's perfectly holy life. You need the great exchange. You need Jesus to take all of your sin upon himself. And you need God the Father to give all of Jesus' righteousness to you. You're standing in the courtroom. It can happen right now. Everything is ready to go. But you must believe. You must believe. You must come to him with the empty hand of faith. And you must come with a heart that says, God, I have nothing to offer you but my sin. We receive me? Now, we don't have enough time today to look at the final two attributes that I had listed. But you can study them out on your own because we won't be coming back to that again next time. Next time, we're actually going to get into the text and follow the flow of Paul's logic word by word, verse by verse, but you are much better prepared, I think, now to look at those verses and understand them because you have been reminded or have learned a little bit about who God is. Let's pray. Father, we... I feel like we are on holy ground here this morning. And that we are barely touching the hem of your robe in terms of understanding the glory of God in salvation. We worship you. We sang that doxology from the heart. We want you to be praised. We want you to become much and, and ourselves to become little Father, I pray that you would save some today, that you would bring others who already know you to repentance from some enslaving sin today. May today be their day. May they find in Jesus Christ everything that the Father has promised in his word. Lord, we will give you all the praise forever and ever. You are worthy. Thank you, Lord. We need this. I need this. Every time I hear it, I need it. And so, Father, change us, we pray, for the glory of our Savior, Jesus.